Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. This week on Product Love, I sat down to talk with Dion Nicholas, CEO of Forethought. So Forethought builds AI-powered products that proactively embed relevant information into employees' daily workflows. You know, with AI, people have this tendency to think about it as something we all need to fear. People assume that automation will simply take over jobs. Let's face it, the progress on AI technology will only continue and it's going to become more and more embedded in our daily lives. But I don't think we need to think of it as a horror sci-fi movie where AI will take over our lives. Take Dion, for instance. He believes that part of the power of AI will be augmentation tools that help people do their jobs better. He believes that AI can help individuals in the context of their workflow. He sees the future of AI as augmentation, not replacement. This all got me to thinking about how product managers can begin to add AI into their tech stack. AI can add so many possibilities for product managers to be creative and efficient. Dion and I shared a lot of thoughts about AI and all the possibilities it can open up for everyone. Let me know what you think of artificial intelligence at eBodic at Twitter or email me at eBodic at pendo.io. Well, welcome lovers of product. Today I am here with Dion, one of the founders of Forethought. So Dion, why don't you start this off by giving us a little overview of your background? Yeah, definitely. I uh, co-founded Forethought about two years ago with my co-founder, Sammy Ghosh and Colm Doyle. Background on me, I'm an engineer by, uh, by training. I build products and infrastructure at companies like Facebook, Palantir, Dropbox, and Pure Storage. And yeah, and I've also been kind of a machine learning guy for a very long time, published papers in, in machine learning. And I co-founded Forethought with a mission to enable everyone to be a genius at their job. Um, so we use AI to embed information into the workflows of employees, um, starting first with customer support agents. So our product for customer support agents will index past conversations and knowledge base articles and any other data source and then uh, deliver suggested answers to the agents to help them close questions uh, much more efficiently so that they can focus on delighting their users. Awesome. So tell me a little bit more about the inspiration behind Forethought. Yeah, so the uh, inspiration behind Forethought, it's actually, um, this has been a problem I've been thinking about in various iterations for most of my life. Uh, so. You know, in school, I was a math and computers guy, but I was really bad at subjects like history. So at the time, I actually built an AI that would read my notes and quiz me on the material. And so, and that's how I got through history class. And that was my first foray into natural language understanding. At the time, you know, the technology was a lot dumber and simpler then, so to speak. Um, but I really got interested in natural language understanding and this and obsessed with this idea of how AI can help people become smarter, so to speak. And so over the years, I've been kind of revisiting that idea in different iterations. And when I met my co-founders, we were um, thinking about how AI can help people at work. So if you're an engineer or an IT manager or a customer support agent, how can AI help you be, quote unquote, a genius at what you do? And so that's kind of the inspiration behind uh, Forethought. 
And then we really started talking to our users, really started talking to folks and started thinking about where somebody would need AI the most, really. Um, and so then we spent a lot of time with customer support teams and uh, customer support agents and realized, you know, they're kind of the unsung hero of the enterprise. They're answering dozens of questions per day. And there wasn't any really good tooling for them to help them be more efficient, even though there's a lot of information, um, product docs being written, past conversations, um, that they really didn't have good access to. And so we realized we could help them be more efficient um, so that we could bring a little bit more delight into their day so that they could delight their customers. And that was really how it, it all got started for us. Interesting. So you have this interesting point of view about the future of work too, right? This whole idea of augmentation versus automation in the workplace. Talk to me about that. Yeah, I think for a very long time, most people associated AI, the word, with automation, and that's fine. However, because of the, the way we began you know, creating AI to help people, or help myself at school, or help people at work, I realized that AI is actually a tool to help people. Again, it, it really is about augmenting a person in the context of their workflow. And for us, you know, today that's the customer support agent. In the future, that can be the sales rep, or the engineer, or, or anyone. And so that, that's really a fundamental thesis about how we think about the world. And I actually think like from a business perspective, from a product perspective, you get a lot more interesting products and a lot more useful products if you think about how you can have humans and machines work well together rather than having machines just try to replace humans, so to speak. And that's really been very, very important to me. And yeah. I mean, and, and that's a good story in particular in the, the fear in today's world is that like robots are taking everyone's job. And in this case, we're just talking about making people more productive. Exactly, exactly. And, and that's super important. I like to think about the fact that humans are really good at certain things and AI, machines, computers are really good at other things. Computers are really good at being able to quote unquote think quickly, but they really can only do what they're programmed to do, so to speak. Humans are really good at being creative, being empathetic, and all of those kinds of things. And so they're actually very different skill sets. So what happens when you merge the two um, is you actually get a human with the power of technology who's much more productive, much more happy at work, much more, I guess, effective with their customers. Um, and it ends up becoming better for the, the company, better for society, so to speak. So tell me about the vision for Forethought. Like, where does it go? Yeah, absolutely. So I always like to start with our mission, and that's make everyone a genius at their job. So the way we see ourselves is not even an AI company, not even a customer support company. We see ourselves as an information workflow company. So every day when an employee, a knowledge worker, so to speak, is doing their job, they need access to information. And that can be in the form of a document. That can be in the form of asking their colleagues for help. Um, that can be in many different forms. And the way we see the world is that the future of, of forethought, so to speak, is we want to be that engine that powers how you get information in your workflow. And so in many, many ways, it's almost like thinking of us as like a search company or an information retrieval company, so to speak, in that imagine if you had a, a system, kind of like a Google-like system, but in our case, it might be Agatha, which is the name of our AI, or the forethought engine in general, that's just embedded into your workflow. So, you know, you're, you're responding to an email and you have a forethought product there. You're trying to uh, do some research on a, on a customer or on, a, on, um, on the market, you have a forethought product there. So that's how we think of ourselves in the future. Maybe that's, you know, 10, 20 years away, but we kind of want to be that information engine for the entire enterprise. So you've gone from software engineer to founder. 
you know, that's an interesting transition. Tell me about your experience starting a company. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many habits you have to unlearn and then so many things you take with you that are really important. So the first habit that I think I had to unlearn was that if you build it, they will come. So most of my life, I've, I've always been building things as an engineer. Um, so again, like going back to building a textbook reading thing in school um, to building social networks or, or products at Facebook or whatever, I've just always been building things. And going from engineer to founder, it starts becoming less about what you can build and more about the customer, more about how they receive it, more about understanding what product market fit is and what customers want. And so I actually ended up having to shift into a very like, I would say sales oriented or people oriented mindset where it's like, I spend a lot of my time just trying to empathize with my customer, with our customer support agents, and just really talking to them and meeting them where they are. And that's been, a, I think, a big shift for me in that that's really where great products are built is, is when you're really trying to understand what is the problem that your customers have rather than what is it that this cool technology, so to speak, can do. Awesome. So what do you think you've been least prepared for in this transition? Ooh, that is a great question. Interestingly enough, I think as you scale an organization, internally it's like, so I've never been a manager before, for example. And so when you go from um, building engineering and and building tools uh, to running an organization, a lot of it becomes how to enable your employees to be geniuses at their job, so to speak. So a lot of it is really about people. So I think one of the things that I've been excited about and and I felt has been a a fun learning curve is, is really just setting up my team for success and setting up our customers for success and so to speak in that you know learning how to manage a team learning how to put people in the right place so that they're the most successful they can be and just like how how an organization scales i mean we've gone from five employees about a year ago to 20 now and so like it's kind of interesting to to see that growth and so i feel like i'm constantly learning and that it's kind of a new company every six months every time we hit a certain inflection point so to speak in that okay we have a new set of of people it's a new kind of organization instead of you know everyone sitting around a desk and being able to communicate with each other it's like all right how do we make sure everyone is aligned on vision we're having all hands and all and stuff like that And it's really fun to see kind of that organization grow and be able to make sure everyone is successful as the kind of the ship gets built as as we sail. Yeah. And you you mentioned your product or sorry, you mentioned kind of the overall vision for the company. And Mm -hmm. in addition to, I guess, the product vision, they're kind of close together. Absolutely. How how are you aligning the company to maintain that vision? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And that's actually one of the first things I think, like when we went from, you know, some smaller number of employees to a slightly larger number of employees. It was uh, actually interesting for me and a little bit surprising that like you actually, when, when you bring on new people, it's not a, a given that everyone knows or shares the same context. And so aligning around both the company vision and the product vision has been something that I would say is like, first and foremost, you make explicit, right? And so, you know, during all hands and, and I would say even over the last couple of months, it's really about talking about why are we here first and foremost. It's like, we're not just an AI company, but we're here to make people geniuses at their jobs. And so focusing on that mission and, and that people-centric part of our, our company and our product has been important. In particular, because there's always a temptation to build a ton of different AI products, right? There's a lot AI can do around automation and, and a few other things. 
and staying true to like what we believe in as a company has been important. So the first thing is like making sure we have our values and our principles as a company in place and that really guides the product. And then when it comes to product vision, it, it really is just about communication. So, you know, thinking about our product roadmap, making sure everyone's aligned and making sure we have stakeholders. So we have, for example, our own customer success uh, manager, customer success function today, and their stakeholders in product. And we have meetings that involve engineering, that involve sales, that involve the customer success team. And so giving everyone a voice, as well as understanding and setting that foundation of values and mission is, I think, the best way to think about where we want to go. And that's how we build good products. Now, talk to me about how you're approaching product market fit. Yeah, that elusive word. Um, it, it's kind of fun because I've heard so many, like, it, it, it's, it's almost like this unicorn concept. It's like you either have it or you don't. So the first thing that I think I told my team was, Let's think about product market fit the same way we think about our business, right? We are constantly iterating. We're constantly building things. So instead of thinking about product market fit in this kind of zero to one fashion, zero or one fashion, we think about it in stages, right? Especially for an enterprise company. It's like, first, you have just an interesting idea that maybe some people will talk to you about. Then you have an interesting idea that some people will pay for. And then you have an interesting idea that, you know, your agents are starting to use more. And then you have an interesting product that... Um, your agents are starting to love. And then it's like, okay, now we have a handful of customers. How do we scale that to uh, 10 or 20 customers? And then you have 20 customers. How do you scale that to 100? And so the, these are actually like, the way I see it is product market fit happens in these discrete steps, so to speak. And then at each stage, you have increasing product market fit for a different or for an increasing cohort of people. Um, and so that like mentality shift of like, hey, it's not just you either throw out a product and it works and you have product market fit or not. It's like, hey, you throw out a product based on your product instincts and your product roadmap and your vision, and then you learn and grow and iterate so that you can start finding increasing versions of product market fit. That mindset shift has been important for us. And then from that as a basis, it really becomes straightforward in concept. It's like, okay, have good vision and instincts and, and thoughts around what, uh, where you want the company to go on a macro scale, and then really, really talk to your customers about what that solution looks like at the micro scale, at the feature level, at, at the service level, and so on. So now with, with Forethought, going directly into that, you're working a lot with customer support and the customer satisfaction space. You know, one of the things us product people are often involved in is, you know, loyalty, right? In particular, net promoter score. What do you think about NPS? So I think NPS is a great measure in aggregate. However, the, the wording is actually an interesting one. So it's you know, on a scale from zero to 10, how likely are you to recommend Agatha or Forethought or product to a colleague? Um, and so we found that like it is a good measure and there's a ton of other measures that you need to understand in order to truly know whether you have product market fit in order to truly know whether your customers love you. Um, there's this really cool article by the uh, founder of uh, Superhuman about the one question that he uses for product market fit. Which yeah, is, I was going to ask you what you <laughs> thought of that too. Exactly. And uh, we actually use it internally and it's how would you feel if you could no longer use our product, our AI Agatha, either not very disappointed, somewhat disappointed, or very disappointed. And I love that question. I think that's a, a much, I guess, a much more accurate measure of customer love or product love, so to speak, um, because it really is thinking about, look, if you, if you took this away from me, here's how my life would change. And knowing that is, is really important. On the NPS side, we think it's very important, especially, you know, we're, we're an enterprise product. 
we sell to a particular buyer who might be the director of support, and then we have our user who's the agents. And so on the user level of like, hey, are you using the product? Are you loving the product? We actually tend to ask them more that uh, product market fit style question of how disappointed would you be if you couldn't use the product? And then we think it's actually more logical to ask the buyer or the administrators about net promoter score because they're the ones who actually in their day to day would be recommending a product to another director. Whereas for the agents, like they may or may not be recommending it to people outside their company, but they would just really love it. And so we like to think about those kind of distinctions when we ask those questions. I like that. Is there other data that you find helpful trying to understand your customers? Yeah, absolutely. So we started to increasingly, you know, it, it's it's a duality between the quantitative and the qualitative. So we spend a lot of time talking to our users. What's cool is that, you know, we've we started to build out our customer success function and we bake that into how we we sell to customers. And we also treat that as a little bit like user research. So when they're onboarding, we'll and, and we're rolling out to new customer support teams, we'll actually spend some time interviewing the agents about their workflow day to day. And then once we've actually deployed, hey, how are you feeling about Agatha? What can we do, et cetera? And so our customer success function has almost been like the bleeding edge of our like product management or user research function in many ways. And so it's really been fun to kind of reorient the team around learning from our users. And so, uh, yeah, that's been that's been really cool. Cool. So, you know, going back to customers and we're in an area today, I think of delight and happiness Mm -hmm. and you're changing one of the ways customers can interact with you. How do you ensure that your product is resonating with your customers? Yeah, that's a that's a really great question. So it really just boils down to being customer centric and then putting customers first. And so. That's one of the values that we, we like to think about. And it, it also goes back to when we were in the founding days of our company, we were really, really customer centric. Again, it's like, hey, we're not just going to build something and hope they come. We're going to go talk to our users first and have them become partners in how we're building our product. You also have to have a strong you know, product roadmap and all those things at the macro scale. But yeah, the main thing is really just understanding user behaviors, again, from whether it's analytics and the quantitative side uh, to the qualitative like surveys and, and just interviewing your users. So making sure that we're building a, a product our customer wants is, is really just boils down to just talking to them, really. It's like at the end of the day, there's a lot of things we can do as a company. You know, We have product launches at TechCrunch and so to speak, and there's like a whole lot of things going on. At the end of the day, we exist to um, build delight into our users' workflow, right? And so remembering that and really orienting our company around that is, is, how, we, is how we focus on that. So now going back to you as a, a founder, right? What made you decide to jump and what's, I mean, there's huge differences from some of the large companies you worked at and now starting your own company. Tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. So I've always been, as a person, I think of myself as a problem solver. And, and that's really like core to kind of who I am. In, in college, I spent a lot of time doing competitive programming. So it's basically you're in a room with a, with a bunch of folks and you're trying to solve these hard uh, mathematical or algorithms problems. And for a while, I thought maybe I was just really interested in engineering and building and writing code. Um, but it turns out I actually, for me personally, I am interested in solving problems. And, and the, the kind of intellectual simulation that came from competitive programming for me was and is transferable to many, many different domains. And so the reason I ended up starting this company was that I saw this problem, basically. And yeah, in the early days, it wasn't about becoming a founder. It wasn't about starting a company for me. It was really about this problem that I kept coming back to, this nagging issue 
that, hey, there's all this information in, in particular settings for, again, again, maybe it was like in school or in work or whatever it is, and yet it's really hard for people to get access to it and, and become productive with it. And so then I founded the company. And again, it really just goes back to like, I want to be a problem solver and kind of like solve the problem in whatever way is, is best. And so for me, that means I've you know had to learn more about recruiting and sales and fundraising and a whole bunch of other things and product and product management. And each and every one of those times, those are just sub problems to me in solving the grander problem. And personally, I found that I was able to make that jump and I, and I enjoy it and I enjoy this like this spot that I'm in and this, uh, this role that I get to play in helping people be geniuses at their jobs. So what, what have you been your biggest challenges in scaling your product org? Yeah. Um, it, the first was uh, kind of goes back to the question you talked about earlier is really just aligning everyone. When you're like a five person company, like everyone kind of gets it. Everyone was kind of there from the beginning. And then very quickly we grew to the point where, um, you know, we're not that giant of a company, but it, it's, it, you start to see like as new people come on, They've only seen the last like three months of product and maybe you've been focusing on one thing or the other. And it becomes very, and, and like you quickly start to see that everyone has actually a different idea of either what the product is or what the, the company is or, or anything. Sales has a different idea than the engineers and the customer success team. So the first step really was aligning. And it was like, hey folks, let's just get back to our vision. Let's get back to the fundamentals and just literally just writing it down, talking about it um, and that sort of thing. And then the second thing about scaling our product was having a tight feedback loop. So for a long time, we would build our product and either sale, it would come in through sales or engineering would, would be building things. And then we realized that we were actually just missing this like solely product dedicated function where it's like, hey, every week, twice a week, we're going to meet, review the customer feedback. That means user research is going to be a core part of everything we do every week and every sprint cycle. That means customer success is going to be a core part of our sprint cycle. And then we're going to bring that back and meet a couple times a week and just go over that and understand if that means changes to our product roadmap, changes to engineering, and then having the right stakeholders in that meeting. I think those are the two things that we've done very recently that's started to allow us to really accelerate on product development. And I won't say finding product market fit, but I will say increasing product market fit to go back to um, our conversation earlier about what do, how do we think about product market fit. Awesome. What else do you want to talk about before we jump into a couple final questions? Is there anything you want to dig into in particular? Let's see. I mean, we are launching another product, um, Agatha Predictions. And so that's something we're super excited about. And that's another example of kind of listening to our customers. So our first product is Agatha Answers, and we found that that helps agents respond to questions. It helps them um, come up with suggested answers, access information, and that sort of thing. And we were finding as we ramped up our product that there was a, an entirely um, separate piece of the puzzle where before a ticket even gets to an agent, how does it end up being routed there? How does it end up being triaged? Who decides um, who works on what? Who's the best expert to work on it? And there wasn't actually a really good segment uh, there or anything really addressing that piece of the problem for them. And so again, as problem solvers and as listeners to our customers, we realized that there was a big opportunity here. And so we, we're launching um, Agatha Predictions, which is a tool that helps agents uh, with the triaging of their tickets um, so that it can be routed to the right person so that this can be used for analytics later on and that sort of thing. So super excited to be launching that product and kind of, as we talked about earlier, responding to problems that our customers have. Yeah, I think that's interesting from a standpoint of, you know, starting with one particular area, you learn a lot more about your customers and can identify either additional functionality to add in your product or 
products that you know complement what you're doing today and expand the company that way. Exactly, and we're super excited about it. And so, like with um, predictions, we can handle kind of that front end of the workload where it's like, hey, just trying to figure out how to triage a ticket and route it to the right person. And then if it turns out it's a slightly more complex ticket, the agent gets it, and then they can use Agatha Answers um, to rapidly uh, respond to it. So we're excited that we can have this complementary uh, problem set as we continue to deliver value to our customers. Awesome. So let's talk about Dion for a minute. Absolutely. You know, what's what's your favorite product? My favorite product, yeah. It's it's funny, as I become more of, you know, as I become a founder and, and that sort of thing, I really love products somewhere between Gusto and Brex, right? These are products that help with a part of my day I didn't even realize I would need help with, so to speak. You know, as we onboard new employees, things about HR, payroll, benefits, like Gusto just makes it dead simple and is like really delightful. And like, I've been like a huge promoter. And then similarly with Brex, when it came to like corporate credit cards or anything like that, um, and just like, as we scale up the team, you know, we have sales folks who are using corporate credit cards. Like it just became dead simple. And like, I could feel the like cognitive load just like being lifted from my shoulder, so to speak. Um, so I love products that make my day really easy. And so I would say, yeah, somewhere between Gusto and Brex. Awesome. Well, one final question for you today. Three words to describe yourself. I would say passionate. I get pretty obsessed with problems and trying to solve them. I I care deeply about people. And yeah, and so passionate is one. Second, I would say problem solver, talked about before, you know, or or maybe even learner. That's actually a better way to do it. I I enjoy learning, iterating, and live for feedback. Um, And then the third word, karaoke. (laughs) karaoke karaoke just as you know because we all gotta have a fun side absolutely love to sing that (laughs) absolutely yeah that's great well thank you this is awesome appreciate your time yeah thank you so much Eric thanks for having me it's been a lot of fun this has been product love thank you for tuning into this episode check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com an online magazine by and for product people